Welcome to the CEO.Digital Show. My name's Craig McCartney. And I'm Darcy Thompson-Fields. And this is an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights that will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders now and in the future. You can find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. Jeremy Connell-Waite works for IBM as the global communications designer. He's a renowned storyteller and speechwriter for IBM C-Suite, an inspirational thought leader and king of the one-pager. In Jeremy's current role, he also works with purpose-driven brands to help them tell more meaningful stories that impact people, profits and the planet. Jeremy is the European leader for Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. Earlier on in Jeremy's career, he founded a brand consultancy in 2001. He's written four books and has worked with companies such as Facebook, Twitter, Salesforce and Adobe. And as if those accolades weren't enough, Jeremy has also worked briefly as a giraffe keeper. Craig, how did you find the interview with Jeremy? Darcy, I absolutely loved it. Um, I've been waiting for this interview for a while now. As you know, I've been following Jeremy uh, and what he gets up to online. And yeah, what a marvellous storyteller. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one of the highlights. Uh, Really enjoyed speaking with Jeremy and yeah, understanding his storytelling perspective. And I feel like I learned a lot from it and our listeners will too. Definitely. And this is a bittersweet moment for us. Um, A great episode but your final one with the ceo.digital show it is i'm so sad to be leaving but so excited that i got to be a part of it uh and yeah can't can't wait to keep listening i've really enjoyed all the amazing guests that we've got to speak to and hosting with you craig and yeah i'll uh, i'll remain an avid fan don't you worry yeah well you've been the rock that's uh, kept it together throughout so um i've got big shoes to fill Let's um, let's not dwell on that. Let's listen to the episode and get straight into it. Let's do it. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. I am personally very excited to have you here and looking forward to unpacking um, some of the highlights from that introduction. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I think it's probably all downhill from here, isn't it? After an intro like that, inspirational thought leader. I don't know how we'll live up to that. We'll try our best. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I can assure you, all of it is true, Jeremy. You really are. And I've seen you speak so many times. I've watched all the content you created recently, and I'm always uh, very impressed and inspired. So again, yeah, very keen to to uh, listen uh, to today's podcast. Let's get straight into it, shall we? Can you tell us how you became uh, the global communications designer at IBM? Um, I invented it. It's um, I'm a big believer that if you've not got the job you want, not necessarily you don't leave and go and find something somewhere else. You build the perfect job. We've got quite an entrepreneurial spirit inside our organization. And I just spent a long time just thinking, I'm sure a lot of us have this, you know, round peg in a square hole. Didn't quite fit. But I'm kind of doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing, but then there's parts of my job that either I don't like or I'm not inspired by or I'm not a salesperson or a traditional consultant or whatever. So I have some wonderful bosses and a lot of freedom within the organization. So I created a job title that's never existed before, which for a company that's 110 years old is quite a big deal. So there was a lot of baggage and some politics and some box ticking that needed to go along with that. But essentially, I've created a storytelling role where it's my job to help other people to do their job better. 
It's it's a pretty simple job. It's tons of fun. How do I help people to tell better stories that make a difference, so that in some way we can have an impact on on the planet? Um, so yeah, so lots of fun. I'm about four or five months into my role. Um, so far, so good. Not everyone can say they've created their own job title, so that really is some great advice right there. Can you tell us more about why you do the things that you do and what gets you out of bed in the morning ready to take on the role as a storyteller? It's a really good question. We should debate afterwards why you should never ask the question why either, which is also interesting. You know, we're all obsessed with why in business and Simon Sinek solved everybody's problems. Like, no, there's there's good reason why you should never ask why ever, but we'll just park that for now, right? Um, the fact that storytelling, we, we all know it's important, right? Even storytelling, like whatever's popping into your right, mind right now as you're listening to this, you might be thinking soft skill. You might be thinking it's the way that you present decks. It's your tone. If you're going to be presenting on stage, you may have even been in a workshop when, you know, some of the females in a group, you've, this is about what you should and shouldn't wear. You know, this is all like the storytelling, soft skill stuff. Um, storytelling's really flipping difficult. It's one of those things that's really easy to do when you don't know how, but incredibly difficult when you do. So the fact that we're storytelling animals naturally as humans, but yet in business, we really, really struggle with it a lot. Some companies have got it within their DNA. They're just amazing, natural storytelling organizations. I came from Salesforce. Salesforce is phenomenal. Storytelling is built into its DNA, visionary leader that absolutely is just a, a communicator with a brand unto himself. He coached under Steve Jobs. So, you know, of, of course he is. IBM's a very different organization. We're like a big collective organization driven by a mission as opposed to looking at the storytelling. We spend a lot of time problem solving around technology and research. We talk a lot about innovation. And that missing piece sometimes is that you focus too much on the tech and not enough on the human side of the story. So that was my mission, really just to try and help bring more of that into IBM's DNA so that we can bring the stuff that we actually do, the technology to life a little bit more. So you started in your role, which you said you created as it, you know, you didn't, they didn't have the job you want. You, you wanted to create something where you could bring your skills and you've, but you've only been there four to five months. So what, what big projects are you working on? What are you starting off the role with? Most of what I do is internal. It's, um, it's helping our partner community. I live mostly within the consulting side of our business, but work alongside research and marketing and internal comms. It's probably the best part of really what I do, because traditionally, if you were to look at a, a communication storytelling role like this, you might think, oh, that belongs in marketing. It belongs in internal, external comms. It belongs in maybe even learning and development, some type of enablement training role. Um, I'm not really any of those things. And one of, the, one of the first projects I ever had when I was working at Facebook was valuing audiences, trying to put a value on an audience. Like, what is the audience actually worth? Just like if you've got 20 million fans on a page, you know, I was working with brands that were spending half a million dollars a day on Facebook ads, right, back in the day when Facebook used to work. And you've got to justify, like, why should I put my money into Facebook and not put it into TV if you're, I don't know, Heineken looking at the Champions League or something? So a lot of what I did was trying to put an economic value on a story. So that's basically what I do inside IBM. It's trying to sit in between all of these different departments and trying to help 
whichever the executive is that I'm working with, not just to write a better speech and to engage an audience in a different way and to bring through their personality, but how do you actually have some type of value, economic value on the end of it? Because I think if you just to boil everything that we're about to talk about, whatever happens next into just, it's, it's a really simple idea, right? Storytelling really only exists to do one thing. It's to entertain people. Like that's it, isn't it? There's lots of structures we could talk about, about how you do that. Um, but really it's just there to entertain people. It's to make people feel something. Now in business, that's not enough. We need something more in business. We need action. So you want to make somebody feel something so that they do something. And that's where I work with neuroscientists and psychologists and sociologists, anthropologists, people that are really looking at behavioral systems as much as they're looking at the creative side. How does the brain work? What's the decision-making process that goes on in the C-suite? Why are so many people overwhelmed and how do you tell stories around that? Um, so that's where the job starts to become very fun, but also not a traditional storytelling role as you might have known it before. It's very unique. It's kind of a hybrid of lots of things. So how do you inspire the C-suite to make better decisions when it comes to storytelling? <laughs> uh, I, I guess it'd be, it would be kind of arrogant of me to say, I'm going to try and inspire the C-suite to, to make better. I mean, most people, people make good decisions. People have got good intentions. Um, you're making a decision based upon what you know, sometimes with a limited amount of information. But here's the thing. I mean, we couldn't get into the weeds talking about, you know, what you know at the time and retrospectively, I don't know what I don't know, unknown unknowns, all that kind of thing. Here's what I found to be true of the C-suite. And at IBM, we do some C-suite research. Um, it's the biggest C-suite study of its kind in the world. You guys know it well. Um, we do go to about 12,500 C-suite execs every year. And we're basically asking them, you know, what matters to you? How do you make decisions? What are you worried the most about? Trends, what's going to happen next year? What we've found over the last couple of years is two really powerful things. And it actually, what we'll probably find next year, after the year that we've just gone through, it might be even worse. Four out of five executives currently feel overwhelmed and underprepared for the challenges they're currently facing in business, right? Four out of five, completely overwhelmed, don't know who to trust, what platform to build on, who to partner with, what consultants to bring in. So you're like, okay, so people are overwhelmed. They're operating or making decisions based out of sometimes anxiety, fear, and stress. Don't know what you don't know. Here's the interesting thing about all of that. We think that executives make those major strategic decisions about the future of their business based upon data or logic and, and rational thought. And just like any other human, who, where I'm going to go on holiday, what car I want to buy, who I'm going to sleep with, what I want for food tonight, those are not rational decisions. What we're seeing is that up to 75% of executives are making major decisions with their heart or sometimes they say they're gut. And often that decision goes completely against the data. Even if the data's accurate, you've got confidence in it, business model, ROI, this is the right thing to do. A lot of people are still like, mm, just doesn't feel right. And then they make a different decision. Now that creates a whole host of problems. But one of the main ways to get around it, if, if we wanna come back to how do we inspire C-suite to make better decisions, stronger decisions, you need to give people more emotional intelligence as well as just the data. You know, Brené Brown, just a gorgeous human generally, says that a story is just data with a soul. 
you're really good at giving data-driven stories to the C-suite. We need to give it a little bit more soul. So I break it down into six areas. I think it's really simple. All great stories do six things. They did a load of research on this at Facebook about what makes viral content, a horrible V word. Um, but really, all great content does six things. And arguably, it's three on the left and three on the right. Left brain, right brain. Not as simple as that neocortex, limbic brain, but we could do that, deal with that later. Um, what we often do, we inform, we educate, and we solve a problem. That's how the C-suite works. We inform, we educate about stuff they don't know. Here's how we're going to solve the problem. Please do it. It's going to cost this. Make money, save money, cost takeout, whatever. But that's not how we make decisions. Humans make decisions based upon the part of their brain that's triggered by feelings and emotions or hormones dopamine, endorphins, oxytocin, and those hormones that trigger decision-making come when you inspire, when you excite, engage, or entertain, or challenge people with a unique point of view. So what I try really hard to do whenever we're presenting any information, obviously the data's got to be accurate, but we make decisions with our heart and we justify it with our head afterwards. Neuroscience backs that up. Our C-suite studies seem to back that up. So I don't just want to inform, educate, and solve your problem. I want to show you how this is also going to inspire you, entertain, and challenge you. And I think once you tick all six boxes, now you're well on the way to making a more informed decision. Some great insight there. And I think it translates really to any situation where you need to tell a story to inspire someone. I'm curious to know which stories or speeches have inspired you lately, Jeremy? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, let me give you two answers. You've put me on the spot now. We've not, we've not planned for this. Um, a story and a speech. Um, let me give you the speech first because I was just leading a seminar on this this morning. And he's my hero. Um, I don't think you can see him behind me. Um, JFK, the moon speech. You know, we choose to go to the moon. 12th of September, 1962. Um, he opened that presentation with a line that could have been written last week. Ted Sorensen wrote it. It took him a really long time, a couple of weeks apparently, to write the opening sentence. We meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear, in an age of both knowledge and ignorance. It's a phenomenal line. There's structures of four words and five lines. We might talk about later about where that came from. But that's just an awesome speech. I love the moon speech, not just because it's a gorgeous speech and what happened and how it inspired people, but IBM was the key industry partner to help make that work. So it's a story really close to our heart. Then when you think about a story, um, this is a really new one. But if you look at Elliot Kipchoge's documentary on whatever your favorite platform is, he's the guy that broke the two-hour marathon record. Nobody thought it was possible. It came out a couple of weeks ago. It's phenomenal. Dave Brailsford used to be GB performance director, um, runs Ineos, used to run Sky Cycling, you know, the marginal gains guy. It goes through literally the art and science of high performance athletes, everything it takes in every little marginal gain, all these incremental, you know, improvements. And it's just not only is it a beautiful documentary and you'll have goosebumps and cry at the end of it just because it's phenomenal. But the amount of lessons in that documentary for executives about what it means to be a high-performing athlete, you know, how do you make the top 1% even better? It's, it's a beautiful story. It's well worth a watch. Speaking of Kipchoge and that world record marathon time, there is a, a great clip you should see, and I'll send it to you after this, Jeremy, but they set up a, a treadmill 
I think they're at some sort of exhibition or either shopping mall, but they set up a treadmill um, at Kipchoge's pace across the whole marathon. And then obviously um, just us regular humans uh, get to jump on and see how long we can keep up with the treadmill. And needless to say, yeah, no one can. And they, uh, people, <laughs> people hit the ground uh, pretty soon after that. But yeah, uh, very interesting. So moving away from breaking impossible records and moon landings, let's get our focus back on the C-suite. I'm curious to know from your perspective, which C-level exec should be responsible for driving change? I'm a little bit biased because I've been in the marketing industry for 20 years. Um, They don't have the respect they deserve. They often don't have positions on the board, sometimes for sensible reasons, but CMOs, CMOs. And that's been respun many ways now. We have transformation officers, and we've got digital officers, and we've got innovation officers, and, and all this kind of stuff. But you look at the heart of a CMO, you know, especially historically what a CMO stood for. You know, they're on the front lines, not only responsible for sales and strategy and pricing, but if anybody understands the customer, it's the CMO. And CMOs are often incredibly creative people that need to be able to justify the numbers in the boardroom to get more budget. So you have to be left brain and right brain. The problem with CMOs is they're also incredibly seduced by shiny things. So they're not always the hardest people in the world to impress because they like shiny, shiny, right? And it's like, oh, here's this new amazing thing, new platform, here's what's going to be our new clubhouse strategy. Now we need a TikTok channel. Awesome, good luck with that, but you're still shit on LinkedIn or or whatever, right? People, there's always going to be this next other thing. But in terms of storytelling, the fact that they are commercial and creative, um, I've found most of my heroes, most of the people I work the closest with, people at Marketing Society, Marketing Academy, not only are they a ton of fun, but they're driven by a bigger purpose. What they need to work more on is apply more economic value to their stories because just measuring reach, engagement, preference, consideration, awareness just doesn't cut it. People outside of marketing don't care. But in terms of storytelling, I think they're among there the best in the business in the C-suite. Hopefully I won't get into trouble for that. Amazing. <laughs> well, as marketers, yeah, we're just hopeful to agree with you. Um, but yeah, going back to you mentioned, uh, you know, if it's about the forward five lines. Um, so yeah, can you tell us a bit more about, you know, what your formula is for speech writing, for storytelling? And also I'd love to, you know, bring back uh, one of the points you made earlier and ask why you should never ask why. I'd love to say it was my formula or my framework. I've written a few and invented a couple of processes. But somebody asked Ted Sorensen, who wrote the moon speech. Um, in fact, JFK wrote a lot of his own material, much like Barack Obama did. You know, people like John Favreau were behind the scenes for Obama trying to make it work. Um, but today you would have, you've, you've got multiple people, all that have got very singular jobs. Back in the 60s, you didn't have that. So Ted Sorensen, who's one of my heroes, said he was a, he's a policy advisor. So he's there negotiating around the Cuban Missile Crisis one minute, and then he's writing speeches the next. So the idea was that he's getting his hands dirty and understanding policy, but he's also able to go and communicate that. That's actually part of the inspiration that I took for a communications designer. You're not just here to deal with rhetoric and language and visuals and stuff. You've got to be client side, solving problems, trying to work with people in the C-suite to solve some of the world's biggest problems, right? So I was very much inspired by Ted Sorensen. And somebody asked him once, how do you write a speech? And he just said four words and five lines. 
dead easy. Brevity, levity, clarity, and charity. Brevity, got to keep it short. Everybody loves a short speech. Levity, keep it light. Try and have some fun with it, right? Don't be too heavy. Even if you've got a really dark topic, you want to try and lighten the mood a little bit because people get overwhelmed. Charity, got to have a purpose. What you stand for is more important than what you sell or what you say. And clarity, we've got to simplify complexity. Put it in a language that my mum can understand, the person on the street, right? C-suite are incredibly time short and attention spans, right? So just put it in simple language. Four words, brevity, levity, clarity, charity. And then in terms of how you actually create that speech, you just said it's these five lines. It's the outline, the headline, the front line, the sideline, and the bottom line. The outline is just a framework. And I've done a lot of work inventing some stuff around how you build a framework of a story. But that's just ultimately what your plan is. Headline. Right. Headline might be the 10 word device that political speech writers use a lot. Basically, they're trying to they're trying to encourage you to write tomorrow's headline. Like we could speak now for 50 minutes. Chances are when somebody says, oh, did you listen to the podcast? And it was Jeremy and Craig and Darcy. What was it? They're probably going to say one sentence and it might be around about 10 to 14 words. So that's your headline. It's really important. What's the one line? Um, the front line is the most important part of the speech that you should move to the top. Don't leave it last. Lead with it. Um, Sideline, have some fun. A quote, your favorite song lyric, you know, motivational quote, um, anecdote, something from your own life. And then the bottom line, what's the purpose? What's your call to action? Because we don't just want to make people feel something. We want them to do something, whether it's your vote Use your voice, change your choices, you know, buy my stuff, whatever the thing is. We need action at the end of it, the bottom line. And um, I think you can beat that, can you? That's about as good as it gets. Four words and five lines. Come on. You know, it's brilliant. Jeremy, I have to admit, I have heard um, some of these things before. And that's only because, you know, like I said, I do follow um, a lot of what you do online. But it was really inspiring and, you know, so much so that I've uh, since briefed in to our content team to use uh, this sort of structure when writing um, our event themes for the, the chief wine officer events that we run. So thank you. Thank you for all of that. And, um, you know, looking at that, can you apply the same formula to speech writing um, to whatever business content you're writing or um, to whatever story you are telling? Yeah, of course it does. And the thing is, if you were to actually dig back into all of that stuff and say, where did it come from? You know, depending upon how far you want to go back, you're going to end up at 335 BC. You're going to end up stood in front of Aristotle talking about poetics, which is his pamphlet that he published. It was about 65 pages long, I think. You can read it on Wikipedia if you're interested. But it's where the three-act structure came from. Not necessarily the beginning, the middle, and an end, but the way that every speech it's the way that theatrical productions work, movies, vast majority of the most famous books and narratives, not poems because they don't have that structure. But, you know, Aristotle's poetics is still used as much today as it ever was thousands of years ago. And you could almost break that down with the shape of a story, you know, intention, obstacle, heroes and villains. Somebody wants something really bad, something standing in their way of getting it. They meet a trusted guide or an advisor that helps show them the way. The guide gives them a plan. The plan calls them to action. Hopefully, everybody lives happily ever after. Sounds kind of like a business story, right, for transformation. And hopefully, it doesn't all go to shit. You know, 85% of transformation projects fail. So if you're Frodo and you're looking for the ring through Middle Earth, you know, there's a pretty high chance it's not going to end well. 
It's no different in business. So telling those stories with heroes and villains and conflicts and obstacles is super important. So really, any story, you say it's four words and five lines, it's really just about intention and obstacle. If you want to create an emotion, intention, what do they want really bad? Obstacle, what's standing in their way of getting it? So as soon as you use the word but, that little three-letter word, the second you use the word but, you've introduced the obstacle or the conflict. Potentially, you've introduced a villain. Now we've got a story because there's tension, right? We've got drama, a bit of theater. And if you actually go back and think about most business speeches, if you think about maybe presentations you've heard recently, how often does that happen? Not as much as you'd think. Oh, we're going to do this. We've seen this problem. We've come up with this. Here's what it looks like. Here's a solution. Here's what it's going to make you. It's going to be awesome. Thanks very much. There's no conflict. There's no tension. It's just a really smooth circle that goes up to trying to get people to do stuff, and they don't, and nobody acts because there's no tension because it doesn't drive the emotions and the hormones that drive decision-making. So how do you get the balance between adding that tension, adding those villains, but still maintaining the positivity in your message? Depends who you're speaking to, though, doesn't it? And the, the worst thing in the world is to be the bouncy person that comes in full of optimism and hope, you know, if things are pretty dark. And it's quite likely that that's going to piss off somebody in the C-suite for sure. But, you know, executives, that's sometimes the last thing that you need. It's about just being able to, you know, to, to wait what it is that they need. And th this is where really it's just problem solving. You guys are familiar with design thinking, right? You know, empathy, hopes and fears, putting yourself in the customer's shoes, trying to understand through design thinking to see things from their perspective. What I do, and I've coined it um, communications thinking, and I have five stages that you work through when you're crafting these big industrial narratives, but communications thinking is almost exactly the same thing. Just trying to put yourself in the audience's shoes and see things from their perspective. So you're absolutely right. Sometimes I'm going to walk in a room and the last thing they want is inspiration and hope and boundless positivity and optimism. Now, they might want a little bit of positive energy, but they also want to know what the problem is straight away and that we're going to fix it, right? Which is why, you know, things like the front line is so important. There might be an elephant in the room. You've just messed up. This went horribly wrong. This didn't work. We've got a resource action. We've had a crisis, you know, whatever deal with that first. So I think it's all about trying to weigh up. So heroes and villains is really just looking at what we're trying to do ultimately. And Nancy Duarte is the superstar on this. Anything you need to know about structure, just search Nancy Duarte, D-U-A-R-T-E, one of my favorite people in the world. You're really taking the world from where it is to where it could be, to where it is to where it could be. So that suits anywhere. Now that could be off the back of a crisis. It could be challenging business circumstances. It could be growth. It could be celebration. But if that's a really tough conversation that you're about to have, you're still trying to look for those peaks and those troughs to try and elevate the conversation. Look, we're not here today, but we could be. But at the moment, we're down here and we've done these things. But here's how we're going to make it better next time. What you're really looking to do is just to find the gaps where you can have those elevated points and then the reality of where we are right now. And the bigger that gap is, and the more of them that you have, the more engaging your story is going to be. But obviously, you've got to keep up with the audience. So to use a really basic example, if you've got a three-minute speech, say it's a three-act structure, 
some people in sales might say, excite, disturb, assure. That's how you tell a story. One minute to excite them, one minute to disturb them. Here's everything that went wrong. One minute to assure them. Here's how we fix it. You're in a safe pair of hands. We're the only company in the world that can do this. Now, if I'm, say, the greatest TED Talk of all time by Miles, Sir Ken Robinson, you know, you look at the peaks and the troughs, it goes up and down many times. He made people laugh every 29 seconds. He told eight stories on average about two minutes every story. It was a really heavily a data-driven talk. I only ever used two numbers in the whole talk. It's just phenomenal. It's just it's just an absolute masterclass in communications. Steve Jobs, the best business presentation of all time, launch of the iPhone. Google Nancy Duarte and Steve Jobs. You'll see the graphic and you'll see how many times it goes up and down. So it's all about just understanding what your audience wants. So all I do is work backwards. What do they want? Where are their heads? What mood are they going to be in? And then what's their attention span? Is it going to be in blocks of 75 seconds? Is it going to be in blocks of three minutes? If you're Chris Anderson at TED, he might argue the attention span is 18 minutes, which is a three-act structure, three acts of six minutes, because executives get bored after six minutes. So we have three blocks of six, which is why a TED Talk is 18 minutes. And that changes. There's no one size fits all, as much as some people would have you believe. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very complicated and requires a huge amount of insight. And that's why when you talk about prepping for a talk, I take anywhere up to 10 hours per minute that we're presenting. And the lowest is probably an hour per minute. You want me to do a 30 minute talk? It's probably going to take me 30 hours. But the vast majority of that is research on my audience and looking at what's relevant, you know, what's important today, all that kind of stuff. And that's where we don't spend enough of our time. It's the old cliche, isn't it? Give me eight hours to chop down a tree. I'm going to spend six hours sharpening the axe. There's a little bit of that. And yet sometimes we just rush too hard in business to get to the talk and the deck. When it doesn't land, that's why we've not done our research properly. Thanks, Jeremy. And, you know, you've done a lot of work with the C-suites across, you know, the other organizations that you've worked at, including IBM. What would you say the biggest problems or challenges are that they're facing right now? The biggest problems, I mean, gosh, there's how long have we got? <laughs> we could probably rattle off a few hundred right now, right? Um, I, I think there's two major things going on. There's lots of things going on, but here's two that are really close to my heart that I see time and time again. Let's think about the mindset. Um, how many thoughts a day do you think the average person has? Some research MIT have been doing. What do you reckon? The average subconsciously. We're not aware of it. We're not need to breathe, you know. I don't know. Uh, what do you reckon? Let's go high. Let's say 100,000. So 70,000 on average, apparently. Now, here's the thing about those thoughts. About 90% of them are the same as yesterday. Bearing in mind, these are mostly subconscious. And also, we can only process about seven thoughts at a time, probably men less, right? But there's, there's not actually that many things that we can do at the same time. It's going to be a very limited amount of seven thoughts. So of all of the thoughts, 90% are the same as yesterday, but here's the, here's the kicker. 80% are negative. So we're dealing with people, our colleagues, our peers, C-suite, we want to influence. The vast majority of their mindset is going to come from a negative state of mind. And what we often end up doing is having all these conversations about what keeps you up at night which is back to being overwhelmed and underprepared. It's back to anxiety, fear, and stress. The problem with that, of course, is that doesn't inspire anybody. So what we should really be talking about, first of all, is what gets you out of bed. What makes you excited? Why do you do the why question? Why do you do what you do? And why 
should anybody care? So within that mindset, I think, first of all, that's one of the biggest challenges, understanding you know, how negative or positive the people that we're dealing with are and the decisions and the weight that is on their shoulders. So that, that's key. That's why I spend so much time around the science, certainly the neuroscience of decision-making. Then if I actually look at, okay, what about the responsibility of the C-suite? Because they're incredibly smart, very well-educated, usually tenured, been in their jobs a long time. Um, maybe not so much CMOs, <laughs> but the vast majority, you know, in a fair amount of time. Social impact. Right. If you don't read it, if if you're listening to this now and you're wondering, you know, where I can go and get inspired, get some new data, I need to go and steal some slides. Um, Edelman Trust Barometer Report. It's one of my favorite pieces of research. It comes out at the beginning of every year. I think it goes out to about 33,000 people. I'm sure it's in like 160 plus countries. Um, I don't work with Edelman, but it's a fantastic report. They're looking at the levels of trust. Now, they've been doing this for over 20 years. And in 2021, for the first time, they found out something that's never happened before. Business is going to become the most trusted institution. You're like, really? It used to be, was it charities, nonprofits, academia, government, public sector? Right? No, business is going to be the number one most trusted. Okay, well, what about the people within those businesses? So it started looking at the, the C-suite. And here's, here's what's going to happen. The C-suite are going to be responsible for driving a social impact agenda, which might be how much is this going to improve the quality of people's lives or reduce an impact on the planet. Now, historically, that's never happened. We've got, you know, our, our CSR, we've got, you know, a chief supply chain, our environmental officers, we've got sustainability officers. But generally, you're kind of looking for the people that drive certainly the public agenda, but you're looking for that to be driven by government environment, NGOs, I could, you know, the fact that that responsibility may now rest upon the C-suite, especially a CEO, is even more reason to be overwhelmed. So what we're going to probably see over the back end of this year and certainly beginning of 2022 is we're going to see articles in Harvard Business Review, being Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, a lot of the trade press is going to be looking at how the C-suite adopt the sustainability mindset, triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. How are you going to impact the social agenda, you personally? And that's where the C-suite need help. And that's why they need the trusted advisors. They need guides. They need people that can help them. Um, and at the moment, it's a lonely job. You know, that's tough. Sometimes you say it's, it's tough at the top. A lot of C-suite are lonely because it's really hard making those decisions. And there's not always enough people around you to help and support you. It's something that we've seen come up time and time and again. And we've just yeah recently brought out a sustainability panel actually featuring, you know, different leaders and, and talking about where this responsibility should lie within the C-suite. But it's so interesting what you say about businesses becoming the most trusted institution and where we're going to be looking. But I'd love to, you know, hear, I know we mentioned a little bit more about kind of your your work as a European leader for Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing there? Well, just that I'm, I'm not particularly special. I'm just one of many leaders across climate reality. You know, I just had the fortune of being, you know, with him and being introduced by amazing journalists, people like Tom Friedman, it's another one of my heroes, writer for the New York Times. Anybody can do one. Anybody can be coached by Al Gore. Um, 
there's lots of virtual training if you go on climate reality right now or you search climate reality leadership core there i think twice a year virtual courses to become climate leaders and basically what you get think about how awesome this is this is al gore right not on you know vice president um someone that knows everything that there is to know about speech writing and about delivering a presentation about politics about winning hearts and minds trying to conquer people you remember he had a you know incredibly eventful political career himself so you've got someone that's been on the inside and gets this inside out you want to understand exactly how to start movements or inspire people and influence them he's the guy so if you could do a leadership program that isn't just going to help show you what's going on with the climate and sustainability and how to apply sustainable development goals to the work that you do in a way that makes sense to you not everyone's turned on by the climate it could be education it could be poverty it could be clean energy there's you know insert your favorite sustainable development goal what you get when you get coached as a climate reality leader is essentially access to his box folder imagine that all of his decks videos research a community of 20,000 plus climate leaders and you fact you've got these people on call whenever you need to give a presentation you need the most up to the minute statistic because in climate, you can't, you can't be fluffy when you're telling a story in climate. Either the number's right or it's wrong. Often, it's binary. You know, There's a lot of political agendas going on in the way that people interpret some of the data. But for the most part, you've got to get the science right. Otherwise, nobody trusts you. So being able to have the most up-to-date information is one of the most crucial parts of being a climate leader. So not only do you learn how to give those presentations, but you get access to that data. But if there's one thing I've taken away from it myself, when you hear him give his presentation, just like he did on Inconvenient Truth and the sequel that he wrote um, a couple of years later, two brilliant, brilliant documentaries, his full slide deck is three hours long, three hours in one go. There's no break. And it's 615 slides. His, I kid you not, it feels like it's 20 minutes long. It's one of the most phenomenal presentations you've ever seen. You're literally on the edge of your seat. It's like Aaron Sorkin wrote it. It's just brilliant. So not only is it three hours long, but then what he does is he teaches you how to give the 10-minute version. And it's called The Truth in 10. So how do you give a three-hour lecture and simplify the complexity of that into a language that someone on the street can understand in order to get them to act? Your vote, your voice or change your choices that's going to impact the planet in a positive way, to do that in 10 minutes. So if you go in jeremy.earth, um, I have a little tiny blog, and I think if you click on um, listen or watch, you'll see me giving a version of the truth in 10. But just search truth in 10. I'll go and you'll see it for yourself. But it's a great exercise for any leader to be able to do that. So um, it's quite something. So sign up. So... As the European leader for Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, what technology excites you the most when it comes to fighting the climate crisis? Yeah, the best technology in the world. Are you ready for this? This is We're probably going to feature in Wired and Fast Company next month. Trees. <laughs> Trees are the best technology that we have. All of the technology that we need to solve the climate crisis is already here. Of course, there's a lot going on around carbon capture. There's a lot going on. I mean, we're spending an obscene amount of money in IBM research at the moment looking at new materials, you know, in order to be able to draw down more carbon from the atmosphere, looking at different types of molecular structures in order to do that. 
But for the most part, they're political problems. They're people problems. And if you really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of it, you're going to start looking at the subsidies that might be given to fossil fuel companies as opposed to the subsidies that should be going towards more renewable and clean energy. That's a political problem. It's not a technology problem. We've already got far too much oil and fossil fuels than we need already. We don't need to get any more. We don't need to keep digging. We've got this huge problem already of these assets in the ground that some of these fossil fuel companies are sat on because they're on their balance sheets. And, um, and they're worthless because they can never be pulled up. You're not allowed to pull it because if, if we're going to try and reach Paris Agreement, you know, if we're looking at the transitions to net zero, for the most part, you can't pull them up. So that creates a huge financial problem for organizations, first of all. And then you start looking at what it takes to change policy in order to have more investment in renewable and clean energy. But then, you know, without being really flippant and just in the interest of time, I'm not going to stand on my soapbox and go down a foxhole. Consumption, you know, just people and population explosion and growth and the fact we're not going to have enough food. You know, there's already, you know, we've got huge electricity problems all over the world whilst technology is scaling incredibly well, especially in developing countries around wind and solar. Um, it's not growing fast enough, partly because they're not supported financially fast enough. But yeah, to think that there's a magic silver bullet of some technology that's going to pull it all down and solve our problem, technology people want to say that, or sometimes fossil fuel people want to say that, because that's easy. That's the least of our problems. And focus on the people and the politics and stop consuming more stuff. And from your perspective, Jeremy, is there hope on the horizon? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and hope's a really interesting thing, you know, especially back to storytelling. We've all got, each of us, we've all got an amount of hope. Sometimes it's not very much. Sometimes we do get overwhelmed. The key to a great storyteller, especially someone that's going to try and drive a campaign or build a movement, is understanding in your audience exactly how much hope do they have. Because if I, here's how you get people to act. You erode the hope as far as you can before it disappears. And if you get right to the bottom where there's only a little bit of hope left, what does it do? Makes you angry, pisses you off, makes you want to do something. If you give people too much information and you give them like the weight of everything, they get so overwhelmed. So you completely destroy all their hope. What happens? You do nothing. They're like, oh, I'm too overwhelmed. What can one person do? Or if you don't give them enough information, they just get engaged and they just like, they like it and they'll support you, but they won't do anything. So hope budgets. No one's ever spoke about that, but hope budgets should really be a thing. Definitely hope budgets. I like it. Um, I am very sadly aware of time in the respect that, uh, yeah, we, we ought to be wrapping up soon. But before we do, uh, we do always like to end our podcast on some short, sharp questions, some slightly light questions, um, more about you as a person. So I'd like to kick off by asking you, what's your guilty technology pleasure? The fact I'm really struggling to answer that. Can I say a fountain pen? I'm not, I'm not kidding either. I, I use... I, I have ADHD. I have very posh, expensive fountain pens. I write in ink. I just love the whole process, but it forces me to slow down. I have to wait for the ink to dry. It looks gorgeous on the page. Um, it forces you to make sense of your thoughts. So I write everything longhand and I write it all in a fountain pen. And there's something quite special about it. When the top comes off this thing, 
I'd like to think something magical is about to happen. And um, I just think in terms of technology, yeah, I think with my pen. <laughs> you can definitely have a pen as your answer, Jeremy. And can you tell me what do your friends think you do versus what your family thinks you do versus what your boss thinks you do? <laughs> um, okay. My friends just think I'm a storyteller. They don't understand how I get paid anything for doing what it is that I do. Um, and some of my northern friends, I'm from Manchester, probably think I've sold my soul to the devil instead of, you know, being in the weeds with my startup in Manchester. And now I'm in the big corporate world of London trying to make a difference from boardrooms. My mum and dad, I love them dearly, have no scooby whatsoever what I do. I try and explain to them. And they're like, we think he writes speeches every now and again. And sometimes he draws stuff. I've seen some of his stuff on LinkedIn. He seems to spend a lot of his time coloring in, which is not like when I was five years old. <laughs> um, and my boss is amazing, though. I mean, she knows exactly what I do. We're very careful with how we measure the impact of the work that we do. So we're scaling this out across IBM. We're a big company with a lot of challenges. Um, we're rebranding at the moment. We've got 220,000 employees. So this is really important to us. Um, so I'm very lucky that ever since I joined IBM, not only have I had a great boss, who, by the way, every single one has been female, never had a male boss, um, always had my back and, and supported me to try and make a difference. I don't think I can leave Jeremy without getting my answer for why we should never ask why. What happens when you're growing up, when you're, when you're, when you're a baby and you, you, you knock something off the table and it smashes or you knock a drink all over the floor? What do your mum and dad shout at you? Why did you do that? Right? From a very young age... We are pre-programmed to have this visceral reaction to the word why. We just are, just as humans. Um, it's a, if you think about it, it's actually a really aggressive word. Why did you do that? Why do you do that? So you listen to people like Tony Robbins and Dan Pink, and you know it's all about, I ask why five times, I ask why seven times. There's a huge amount of truth in that. I've seen executives crying in front of Tony Robbins when he's asked them why seven times to get to the truth. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It absolutely does. Does it make them angry and piss them off? Does it work for everybody? You know? Here's the thing. The person I heard that from is Chris Voss at the FBI. And he's just a wonderful guy. Um, he wrote Never Split the Difference, which I'm sure many of your listeners will have read. It's just an amazing book. He's a guy that negotiates with terrorists and hostage negotiators, right? And bank robbers, where somebody might die in 60 seconds if they don't do what he needs them to do. So he's got to build a relationship in the most accelerated timescale possible. Now, just for, bear with me for a second, but think about what we do in the boardroom. It's not a million miles away. You've got to build a relationship as quickly as possible with someone you've never met before that you might not even like. Now, we want to have empathy and put ourselves in their shoes, but what if we don't like them or we don't agree or believe with them? Then you need something called tactical empathy. I need to put myself in your shoes, even if I don't like or agree with you, in order to reach a common goal to do the thing that we need to do. Whenever you listen to Chris Voss negotiate, and he has something on masterclass.com, he has a whole class where he teaches this. He says, never ask why. You mirror, you label. Sometimes you just repeat the last three words that they said with an upwards inflection. Sometimes you just say, oh, what it sounds like you said is this. Oh, it feels like what you're saying is that. What I'm hearing is, and then big, long silence, and you let them speak. 
And without realizing it, they pour their soul out and they tell you what the real truth is very quickly. Never once asked why. So if that works in hostage negotiations, um, pretty sure we could make more use of it in the boardroom. Jeremy, I honestly could listen uh, to you speak all day and I, I really am not just saying that. I am so grateful you've joined us on today's podcast. I'm sure the guests are too. I can't wait to listen to it back. Thank you so much uh, for joining us here on the CEO.digital show. And yeah, continue what you're doing. I will uh, always be looking out for it and we will make sure that we share some of the links and some of the items that we've spoken about on the podcast page once we've published it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully we'll do it again. Yes, thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. It was a pleasure. And yeah, thank you so much to all of our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. As always, please do rate, review and subscribe. We've got some fantastic guests coming up for the end of this year and next year. And we'll see you again soon.